Escape from Society Podcast Episode 21 July 2014 Hey guys, so 1st of July rolled around and I got into a minivan and drove from New York City to Cape Cod. This was on a day where the World Cup was still taking place, so we listened to some World Cup on the radio and the USA was playing against Belgium. The game started, I think it was about halftime when we got to the venue. I was in the car with the rest of Tin Pan, and we were engaged to play the Cape Cod Jazz Festival. Cape Cod Jazz Festival is really just this one resort, restaurant kind of place that books jazz bands in the summertime. So it's a festival in that sense, but it's not a festival in the sense of many bands concentrated over a weekend. It's just one band per night throughout the summer at this place. If you picture Cape Cod as sort of a curling arm bicep creating shape, this resort is right in the elbow on the Atlantic side. Being a Massachusetts native, I am somewhat familiar with Cape Cod. And Tin Pan was out on the Cape in Provincetown, right at the end, sort of the fingers of the Cape last fall. But that's not how this gig came about. Like many Tin Pan gigs, it came about because someone saw us in the park. The person who saw us play in Central Park, in this case, was the owner of this resort, who then sent a scout the guy who's in charge of booking the festival to hear us at a restaurant at some point. Apparently he approved, agreed with his boss that we'd be good for the festival, and they hired us. It would appear that the rest of the booking for this festival leans towards the smooth, contemporary jazz side of things. Matter of fact, there was an MC for the event who introduced us by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy the smooth sounds of Tin Pan. Which is ironic because few would characterize the way any of us play or sing as smooth. But I don't think the MC had heard the band before, and that's what he's used to. So, a little bit about the resort. We were staying there. We were given two rooms. 
very comfortable. And like I said, the resort is on the Atlantic side. It's actually, there's a little bit of a bay inlet kind of thing going on with a little sandbar separating this bay from the ocean. So little to worry about in the manner of great white sharks there in the water, because that is a concern. And the water is a little bit warmer than the ocean probably is. So we pulled up, we're given our room keys, shown to the performance area, and while the sound technician arranged his microphones, I jumped directly into the water. Just down a few steps, bam, in the ocean. Sound check began. I came out of the ocean and picked up my trombone. And we finished sound checking by the time that the USA was going into extra time against Belgium and watched the rest of the football match from our comfortable hotel room, which had really an extraordinary mini bar situation. You think of mini bars and hotel rooms as being for suckers. The beers cost $10 and can't be replaced. You get these sort of proprietary sized beers in mini bars that are like some weird number of ounces, you know, like a 14 ounce bottle of beer. So if you make some mistakes during the night and you drink some of the mini bar beers, you can't just rectify your costly error in the morning by getting a six pack and shoving it in the mini bar and not having to pay. You can't find a 14 ounce sized beer and you cannot rectify your expensive mistake and you pay dearly for your beers. Um, it's happened. It's happened to people I've traveled with. In this mini bar, beers were normal. You can get them right at the store. However, if you get them at the store, they're probably going to be more expensive than they are in the mini bar. $1.50. $1.50 for like a bottle of Sierra Nevada. So we felt very welcome right away and were fed dinner before performing. And so I had gone for a swim, had a little rest, watched some football, warmed up, etc., sound checked, eaten dinner. And before we played, I thought, yeah, so maybe I'll have a drink, a beer, a martini or something I was thinking. So I walked uh, up to the barman who was serving the patrons for the concert, and he said something I've never encountered before. He said he's not allowed to serve musicians. Now, I think he means the musicians who are performing on that evening, but it's not blanket statement can't serve musicians. But it's not the situation where uh, they do not provide complimentary drinks to the band and you have to buy your own beer. It wasn't that. It was, we will not give you beer under any circumstance. Um, a policy I'd never come across before. Not a big deal. 
took it at face value and played. So we were playing for a seated crowd, kind of upscale Cape Cod vacationing crowd. One thing that was hard not to notice about the resort, although I don't know if I necessarily level this as a criticism of the place. It is the kind of place that has an all-white clientele and an all-black service staff. And it just feels a little weird. I'm sure you've been in a situation like that. And in fact, I talked about it with some people uh, in regards to another resort type of place on Cape Cod where uh, they take vacations and they're friendly with management there who says that yeah, their, their staff is mostly from, like, Jamaica. And the people who work at resorts down in Jamaica, that's the kind of work that they do, and they're useful, and they get visas, and they come up and they work on Cape Cod, and they make more money than they would in Jamaica, and then they go home or whatever. It's not necessarily an exploitative scene and not a racist scene. It is just a little weird. So that's a little weird. The no alcohol thing is a little weird. But with the mixed signal that there's like cheap, plentiful beer 30 yards away in our rooms from the minibar, um, I'm over articulating all this. I'm getting long winded here. But we were playing for a seated crowd, rather upscale, and they enjoyed it tremendously. Tin Pan played a set through amplification. We did most of the normal stuff, but uh, in a very concert setting, which I'm not accustomed to playing with the band. Whether we play at a restaurant or in Central Park or in the theater thing or whatever, it's, it's often not playing for a captive audience who is not engaging conversation is just sitting and listening or getting up to dance and many people did get up to dance which was great so I, I felt a little um, I wouldn't say uneasy but it was a new it was kind of like a new vibe for me in that music and um, having played with Tin Pan a lot this summer as regular listeners to this podcast can attest I feel very comfortable on all the music and I you know I don't feel ashamed about playing it in front of people who are listening really intently but it's just um, it doesn't really feel like the native context for that music I could be wrong I mean talking with uh, Jesse the band leader in our room later on he says this I could get used to this you know, playing this music for people who are sitting there and listening, going on tour uh, very comfortably. We played one set, after which we sold some CDs and retired to the outdoor pool and hot tub, at which point we were allowed to order beers from the bar. So we had some beers in the hot tub under the stars. It was a gorgeous night. The place we played was sort of under a tent. It was like an indoor-outdoor type situation. So had a nice ocean breeze 
blowing our way. It's very nice, very nice event. Cape Cod Jazz Festival. Turned out that week that I was really I wound up traveling quite a bit in the car, chasing the gigs. At three gigs, um, this one, one in Montreal and one in the Woodstock area, uh, sort of all coming back to back with a rehearsal that I needed to do in the city, coming in between. So uh, the first week of July really tacked on the miles um, on the road, did a lot of traveling, which didn't feel great, sort of exhausted me in a way. I, it was like being on tours, you know, you drive five, six hours a day, except it was three different or four different bands to be playing with, different kinds of music, not being with the same people, um, and in fact being by myself for some of these drives. Uh, sort of gave it a different character. Anyways, I drove back to New York, did this rehearsal, and then drove to Montreal on the 4th of July. Very patriotic thing to do on Independence Day, leave the country. I did stop in Plattsburgh, New York, to enjoy their version of uh, celebrating the 4th of July. In Montreal, I was playing with Gordon Webster's band. I don't, yeah, I guess you heard about Gordon Webster, the band leader, when um, we played Terminal 5 doing the Frankie 100 thing. Uh, last year, sometime in the fall, I had played with him in Montreal, and we were returning to the same dance studio, which is called Cat's Corner. Very active dance scene in Montreal, which I think is all credited to this one guy who's the patriarch of the scene, a little bit older now, and just started teaching dance classes 15, 20 years ago. Things got rolling. Cat's Corner at now a thriving dance school for swing dancers, and I guess they get Gordon up at least once, twice a year, so this was my second time up there with the band. It was a little bit whirlwind. I sort of arrived at, I don't know, 8 p.m. or something. We probably played something like 10 to 2. And someone in the band had a, um, they weren't even fireworks. They were like practice grenades for military use. And it was three or four in the morning. We were trying to figure out like where to get our cars parked and how to coordinate getting back to the hotel and and stuff and so we had these like grenade things that we were going to launch uh, which we wound up not doing sort of because we didn't know where to do it and also it seemed like incredibly dangerous especially in a big city on a Friday night to like set off some massive explosive and where are you going to throw it into a crowd of people you know throw it down a uh, abandoned looking alley only to find out that there were some people in there it reminded me of um, 
the 4th of July episode of The Simpsons, where Homer is at a uh, Quickie Mart kind of place trying to buy fireworks. It's not the Quickie Mart in Springfield, and it's not a poo, but it's like the Apu of this town that they're in. And he says, celebrate the birth of your nation by blowing up a small part of it. That's his sales pitch. So anyways, we did not blow up any part of our nation or Canada on that day. But we played in Canada. I got up early in the morning and then drove myself down to uh, New Paltz, which is a town in the Woodstock area, Catskills, lower Catskills, um, not too far away from the city, hour and a half, two hours away from the city. So I drove most of the way back to the city, to New Paltz, and this was playing a wedding with Simi Stone. Simi lives in Woodstock. She's a violinist, singer, writes songs, plays the guitar, and she's been in a couple of bands. She's traveled around. She grew up in Woodstock, and she's back living in Woodstock now, and started to write songs with this guy, David Barron, and uh, they wrote you know, more than an album's worth of material, started recording it, sort of assembling a band, recording it bit by bit. And I think David saw me play with Blueberry up at the um, Bearsville Theater. We opened for the Brazilian band Os Mutantes at some point last year. Had a very nice Blueberry set. And I think it's stuck in David's mind that like, yeah, there was this trombone player who was good, who maybe would be a you know, good person to have play horns on the semi stuff. And so he got in touch with me at, at some point. And last fall, I did several gigs with the band, um, all of them upstate a little bit. And the commuting is um, a bit much. And they're also very responsible band leaders and pay everybody. So I haven't been doing any semi gigs this year as a lot of them have been just duo or it has been the band, but it's been upstate and they haven't been bringing me up, which I totally understand. There's a great saxophone player, Tony Aiello, uh, who I think has been doing a lot of the gigs and we did a few of them together. He lives up there. Anyways, this wedding was booked on July 5th in New Paltz and maybe Tony wasn't available. And it was a wedding, so it paid. And so anyways, I got to be on the gig, which was really nice to play this music after a hiatus of six, seven months. Um, I'd certainly been thinking about the stuff. I remembered the tunes all really clearly. And the album's now finished, matter of fact. You're hearing some of it in the background. So this wedding gig was... A couple, lesbian couple, been together for like 30 years or something, and they weren't necessarily waiting for gay marriage to be legal to get married. Uh, You know, that happened a little while ago in New York, last year at some point. Um, It just happens that in this past year, they decided like, spur of the moment, like, oh, let's get married, and then they got married two weeks later, and this was not the actual wedding, but a big party sort of neighborhood 
block party, invite all their friends. Got a big tent, hired two bands. So Simi's band played just kind of a regular set of our own material for an hour or so. And then the remnants of the Levon Helm band played under a different name. They weren't billing themselves as the Levon Helm band, but it was Amy Helm, Levon's daughter, and um, some of the other guys who I'd seen play with that band doing basically that same material. And they played a couple of sets after we played. The green room that we had was a pool. When I got there, they said, uh, you know, the hosts, the host couple who were being celebrated, they just, you know, were in t-shirt and bare feet the whole time. It was not a formal affair in any way. Good food, catered, but just kind of buffet style. And um, they have a pool in the backyard and a pool house, which is stocked with booze. And they said, help yourself to drinks, hang out in the pool. You know, you guys can have this as the little band area, eat whenever you want with the people, without the people, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Very comfortable situation and fun to play Simi's music. And then um, I wound up hanging out in Woodstock for uh, the rest of that night and the entire next day, which was nice after, after several days of driving to just kind of be in a place, chill out, and be in a very, actually, beautiful place, and go swimming, and do stuff like that. So, chasing the gigs there, first week of the month, worked out okay. Touch us once and we will follow. There isn't much time to sleep down in a hollow.
haven't done any gigs this year with the band The Drunkard's Wife, but over the previous couple of years, I did many gigs with this band. It's organized by Craig Flanagan and Normandy Sherwood, and Michael Evans, the drummer, is old friends with Craig. They played in the band God Is My Co-Pilot together for many years, and Michael was playing some saxophone with the drunk, drunkard's wife and invited me to come on board. It's sort of a loosely collected group of musicians, very accordion-heavy and horn-heavy. The songs are covers of Balkan pop songs and the occasional Sun Ra cover the occasional punk nirvana cover or whatever, uh, some bhangra and Bollywood stuff thrown in. It really draws from many sources, Hungarian and all kinds of things. And Normandy sings, Craig plays the guitar, sort of musical directs, and people hopefully know the songs pretty well when they play them, but People don't always know the songs too well and don't always know how to play the instruments they're holding too well. So it's a sort of, you know, it has sort of a uh, no wave punk aesthetic with a world music spin. So there have been a couple of theatrical productions that are offshoots of The Drunkard's Wife. There was one called um, Tiny Hornets that was done at a space in Long Island City that that Craig and Normandy had control of for a painfully short amount of time. It was called the Uncanny Valley and they really had a lease on this place for like nine months before being told to get out of there by the landlords, which really sucked. Um, I had done my Escape from Society release show there. There had been a couple of other really fun concerts there um, and in a, in, neighborhood like Long Island City isn't really there yet, so it was going to take a while for this venue to find its footing, but it really might have, and that opportunity vanished. Anyways, the show Tiny Hornets was done there, and Normandy, who writes plays, uh, decided to do another Drunkard's Wife-related kind of playwriting exercise based on Stravinsky's The Soldier's Tale. Now this is a piece of music that Stravinsky wrote to go along with a libretto. They were written together. Um, he was collaborating with, a, a, I think, a Swiss poet whose name I don't know, and written in French. It's a classic sort of Faustian tale. There's a narrator, a soldier, and a devil. And the narrator tells most of the story of the soldier on his way home from war. The soldier plays the violin. He encounters the devil. Um, he makes a deal with the devil involving the violin, and his life falls apart. That's the basic uh, storyline. But the English translation of the soldier's tale is rather corny, and other people, including Kurt Vonnegut, have written versions. When I was in college, 
I did the Vonnegut version with um, some other students and faculty there. Um, so Normandy decided to take a crack at writing a new soldier's tale story. She added some characters. She added a whole bunch of ideas and scenes. And um, she and Craig sort of co-wrote a lot of the things or co-wrote a lot of co uh, generated the ideas for a lot of the scenes and that took place and also the music so the Stravinsky music is often heard on its own without any um, any text being spoken and it's really great Stravinsky stuff uh, some of the some of the best and he's got a lot of great stuff um, but so many other ideas were being pulled in to the aesthetic of this piece which was called feather gatherers that we didn't want to just play the stravinsky but also play some improvised sound cues and some folk songs of appalachian origin and hungarian origin and other eastern european origins so Craig and some of the other people in the ensemble brought in little things that could serve as scene music or dance music. So we played pretty much the entire Stravinsky score, but not all of it, with a bunch of these other cues. There were like 20 people involved in the show, and we had a four-night run of performances part of a theater festival called the Ice Factory. It was done at the New Ohio Theater, which is down on Christopher Street. So July 9th through 12th, we were there um, doing the thing. And it went really well, actually. From an audience perspective, we had the house full every night. So that's good. From a musical perspective, things came together. The rehearsal process was not fun. We rehearsed a few times. Some of us had done a, an embryonic version of the show last fall and had an idea and had some of the preparatory work done. But there were new people to the ensemble and Craig had found someone to play violin and someone to play drums who were not up to the task. Um, so replacements had to be found kind of last minute, which was difficult to pull off successfully, although the violinist we got, um, and violin is the key to the whole show, violinist we got was totally awesome. Great at both the Stravinsky stuff and the improvised and um, you know, Appalachian stuff, like she was all over everything. So that was cool. Um, but we never really had rehearsals with all seven of the musicians together and um, seven musicians plus conductor. So it was, um, it was frustrating uh, it, during the rehearsal period to sort of not know 
if the piece was going to come off, if we were going to have enough time to not only learn the music, but begin to actually shape it and phrase it. I would say largely we did in the end, um, thanks to some superb musicianship and also the very capable baton and musical mind of our conductor, Ben Groh. Um, we were a well-organized ensemble and we, we played the stuff well. And it was, it was fun to do this music with um, a group of, of seven musicians who were not all from the same world. There were a couple of people who come from the classical world and uh, some people who come from more of the Balkan scene or the klezmer scene, or the jazz scene, or the punk scene, or whatever. I mean, there was a lot of stuff being mixed together. I also play under a conductor very infrequently. And it was fun to actually talk to Ben about conducting and what he was noticing. You know, certain of us in the ensemble were unresponsive to certain cues that he was giving that were being picked up on by the musicians who are accustomed to playing under a conductor. And that would be because there are little subtle things a conductor does. I often think of the conductor as like just kind of a timekeeper and maybe does a little bit of aesthetic shaping of stuff here and there, but most of the sort of dripping movements and so evocative, emotive, like blah, 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 I think is total crap and is just done for the audience and for the conductor's own ego. However, there are certain signs that a conductor will drop in if he wants an articulation to be a little bit tighter or if he wants a passage to be uh, brought out, pushed back, uh, you know, I'm even being a little bit too broad uh, in terms of the subtlety that a, a good conductor can um, draw out of a musician who he's really on the same wavelength with. And there were a few of those type of musicians in the ensemble for Ben to work with, and a few of us who um, were, you know, I'm more or less listening to the other people in the band and using my ears to be like, yeah, this is where we are. This is where the rhythm is. This is how we're phrasing this thing. This is where our dynamic is. This is our blah, blah, blah. Using more of my ears than my eyes to catch my place. And that's just what I'm used to from playing in jazz bands and rock bands and not working with a conductor. So interesting, the hybrid nature of that. I mean, when I worked with a conductor in the uh, sound painting world, sound painting is a thing. You're not supposed to call the sound painter a conductor, but for this conversation, it's all right. The, the uh, sound painter is a conductor-like figure who stands in front of the ensemble and gives physical gestures that the group reads and interprets and plays. And so the musical material is most often 
generated by the musicians uh, imaginations you know improv Im improvised you get a a sort of on off start go type of uh, signal from the sound painter and then the sound painter can drop other commands on top of the start go it can be start a sustain note or start a passage where you are playing quietly and you're playing short notes or start you know playing something that's in a rock and roll type of style or start playing something that is in the key of blah 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 um, that is like watching the conductor very intently because you have to I mean there's no music to look at and you've got to get every signal and process it and respond to it do the correct thing provide your own musical information <clears throat> I did that for a few years this many years ago now but that that experience of looking at a conductor is not even I don't I don't know how much it applies to playing classical music under a conductor it's not really the same thing although there were a few conductor type sound painting type gestures in some of the improvised passages of feather gatherers uh, let me shut up for a minute and highlight uh, some of the Stravinsky music that is so nice from The Soldier's Tale.
One final thought about Feather Gatherers here is that in assembling the production, which, like I mentioned, was quite large in terms of number of people involved, uh, eight people, including the conductor and the band, uh, roughly the same number of, of actors and dancers, if not a few more, plus lighting designer and choreographer and stage manager and blah 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 there was a um, Indiegogo I think campaign something similar to Kickstarter I don't know the financials of how much money the theater festival produced to uh, bring the show on I don't know if there were other grants or anything but it did make sense with so many people involved to try and raise some money and to do it online with crowdsourcing, which is you know, something that has really caught on in the past few years. And I know people who have used crowdfunding um successfully and others who have used it sort of unsuccessfully and I've just always resisted becoming a fan of crowdfunding in terms of artistic endeavor uh, I just I just don't like it and I have a few thoughts and you can you can poke holes in any of these arguments I know but I do prefer the traditional method of making a record and then selling it to people and I've noticed that in some Kickstarter campaigns you do an A-B comparison of someone who's making a record via Kickstarter and getting a few hundred backers to buy the record sort of as an act of support and then making a record not with Kickstarter and not being able to sell 10 copies of it maybe because it's an act of consumerism to buy a record that's already made the psychology of it just seems wrong to me even though it's great that it elicits support from people the the sort of gimmicky um, different levels of support getting different rewards 
I've always hated that. And I was I was hearing a piece about um, movie theaters on the radio yesterday. I think it was on Marketplace because this was like an economic perspective on selling popcorn at movie theaters. There's a 1,300% markup on popcorn in certain movie theaters. It's so ludicrously expensive. And wouldn't you just sell more popcorn if you brought the price point down and then more people would would buy it and um, basically movie theaters have figured out that the answer is no they'd rather sell it at a 1300% markup and and sell it to a few people than sell lots of it at a 100% markup um, or a 50% markup or whatever you might think is a fair um, price for the product and I think Kickstarter campaigns are, are sort of fishing for the same thing it's like yeah maybe you have a um, hundred backers for your Kickstarter campaign and 96 of them paid you $15 and four of them gave you like $300 each um, or one of them gave you $1,000 or something and you emailed 1,500 people to promote the thing and you emailed them like seven times each. Is it really worth bothering 1,500 people uh, persistently over the course of a month so that like a bunch of them sort of like reach into their pockets and give you a few bucks when really what you need is that 1% who shows up with the like sort of producer level dollars that's what you really need that's what you really want that's what in the past you know a record label would provide or uh, an actual theater producer would provide or your job that you just like shut up and worked um, so that you earn the money that you could front your uh, artistic endeavor um the pestering aspect of a Kickstarter campaign, I don't like. The the gimmicky sort of um, it's not really classist, but it's it's kind of bald faced. Like, yeah, give me more money and I'll give you more stuff because I need more money. But is that just raging capitalism, or is that a very fair sliding scale? type of arrangement where if you have the money to give you give more and if you don't have the money to give you give less uh how can i make a more articulate argument i mean here i am i'm like going out in the park and busking and doing the hat in hand thing but with tin pan the the busking model is we don't make money from the like $1 tips that we get. It's, we make money from the $20 that people spend to get a pair of CDs. And that's, it's when you sell 60 CDs in an afternoon that everybody goes home with like a decent amount of money. When a hundred people, you know, a hundred people all give you a dollar, that's great, but 
no, five or six people buying the CD package does just as well. Um, so the like sort of pandering to everybody trying to like unite this huge mass of people it's not it's not really the way to make money when you've got your hat in your hand in the park or when you're running a Kickstarter campaign and just like in the park uh, performers annoy people I mean it's it's it hasn't been getting press in the park lately but certainly in um, uh, Times Square with the um, what do they call it? You know, the like superhero costumed people and the uh, animated, you know, the Elmos and the whatever's who wear these costumes and take your picture and then ask you for a dollar. Those people have been getting some bad press lately because it's very borderline uh, panhandling and it, people can get aggressive. And so when it comes to Kickstarter, it, it does feel sort of like panhandling, sort of like, you know, asking your parents for allowance or something. And that's how it feels to me. And to some people it feels like this is the 21st century, this is like crowdfunding and you relate to people and it's it's really, it's social networking and it's all about support and I don't know. I mean, the world of grants is bullshit, too. It's all... <laughs> you write a grant, you spend... A, I mean, of all these things, you have to spend a ton of time to run one of these campaigns. I mean, you've got to pester all your friends all the time and, um, and try not to be insulted when they don't give you any money. And if you're sitting at home writing grants, you're not necessarily going to be awarded the grant and... You might be making up all kinds of bullshit and selling your soul uh, doing that. Anyways, I mean, it can go both ways. I'm just stating my current opinion held since the inception of the Kickstarter revolution that I just don't like it. I don't like doing it. But if you contributed to the campaign to raise funds for feather gatherers. I would personally like to thank you. Um, none of us made great bank on these shows, um, but we were paid, I think, pretty fairly for uh, production of this scale. You know, independent theater with lots of people. Uh, I think to walk away with the money we did ain't bad. And, um, you know, the Indiegogo campaign helped with that. So, what am I, biting the hand that feeds me here? Well, speaking of Central Park, Tin Pan did play in the park one afternoon during the Feather Gatherer's run. For those of you who are keeping score, the following week, uh, miraculously, we had theater camp down at Trinity Church. Now, I mentioned our old friend Lisa got fired from her post at Trinity, and she's the one who was hiring us for all kinds of gigs, us being uh, banana bag and bodice, the 
the theater people and me and some of the other associated banana bag and bodice musicians as musicians for musician functions and um so yeah lisa got canned and we had planned a two-week theater camp in july and i had i had not put all my eggs in in uh, this basket but last year when we did a one-week camp there i really made hay um by working hard and getting paid well and and so i was looking forward to a couple of weeks worth of that uh kind of work and that kind of money and then um that vaporized when this woman lost her job at trinity and camp got canceled however uh i think like on friday of the week before i i got an email from my banana bag and bodice friends saying that they actually had been doing the camp um they had already done a week of it and they were going to do another week of it because the parents basically had raised a stink and said um we uh had hey you know we had counted on two weeks of childcare with this camp thing and now you're canceling it what like that's not okay we can't do that but the church i think had to respond with like well we don't really have the resources in place or we don't want to put the money towards it and i don't know what kind of behind the scenes shenanigans were going on but the camp eventually got turned back on um, the original schedule of those two weeks and so the first week had already happened and it was radically different than what it was originally going to be it was originally going to be about Alice in Wonderland and it was going to be lots of time with banana bag and bodice uh, working on a show and the littlest kids were not going to be involved because we had you know four-year-olds last year that just like you can't do an all-day camp with four-year-olds and like tell them to be in a show I mean there's some unworkable um, conceptual uh, basis for that assumption uh so there were like some Christians from Texas running camp in the morning and then Banana Bag and Bodice doing it in the afternoon or something. It was a little unclear to me what was happening, but I was asked to come in on four afternoons and help out on the music side, which Brian McCorkle was captaining. So Brian and I developed music for the show which was not Alice in Wonderland. It was something the kids devised on their own and and then our friend Jason sort of wrote a script uh, about a candy planet kind of thing. The story was outrageous, um, but sort of fun because it was straight out of just like the kids' imagination world. Um, but these kids were just a mess, man. They were just hyper and disobedient and 
wacko. So, um, so counselors who I think were working on a volunteer basis were just like quitting or calling in sick and not showing up and then there weren't enough people to look after the kids so the kids went even more crazy and then the other counselors were breaking down crying and asking us to do more work and we were like no we we made an agreement to work this amount and get paid this amount and that's what we're going to do and this isn't our fault and I don't think they were really any hurt feelings, but the, th <laughs> the thing was kind of a mess. It really was kind of a mess. Um, but what did we do musically that was fun with the kids? Oh, see, I mean, we wound up having, like, little four-year-old kids again, after all. And they're funny. I mean, they can have one line to say all in unison over and over again. There's one scene where they all go, fascinating as the older kids like tell them about stuff from the candy planet and you know there's like six or seven of these four-year-olds and you know like two or three of them would go fascinating together with one of the grown-ups who was coaching them and the others just like were just not paying attention that's their moment to do something and that something is say one word, and that's not possible. So, with that reality being a reality, um, any ideas of like doing music with them is obviously not gonna fly, and that is also true for some of the kids who are a little bit older. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to get them focused enough to learn something and be able to do it and also uh, we weren't working in a way that was very organized or planned out so there was a lot of kind of um, seat pants flying as Brian referred to it I think that I think the best thing that we did musically with the kids was with the older kids um, I had my trombone and we did just like a Q&A trombone general music time because these kids are, are old enough they're you know like 11, 12 that a lot of them have taken up a band instrument or have friends who do or a sibling and so they have questions and it was fun to really just answer their questions and see what they're thinking about and try to encourage them to play and have fun with music the uh, the show that we performed for parents at you know three o'clock on Friday afternoon after uh, one week for me two weeks for everybody else of preparing this um, show the show went off okay uh, there's a lighting designer who comes in and and does light so it, it looks pretty official and most of the kids knew most of their lines and knew the songs and so Brian played the uh, keyboard and I played the trombone and we were the pit band and uh, that was that is it something the kids are gonna remember forever I mean I remember baseball camp forever from when I was that age um, Maybe it is. It's hard to know if I was part of something 
really special or if I was part of just kind of a weird babysitting experience that happened to be at some like theatrical church camp where we made a play. I don't know. Like I said, our play was done at three in the afternoon. I ran up to a recording session for the rest of the afternoon and then off to Skinny Dennis where the band The National Reserve plays every Friday. And so I played with National Reserve sort of awesome blues rock band and Mario, who I know from Banana Bag and Bodice originally, but now more often play with in um, The Hot Mess, Mario and I were a little horn section together. And I've played with National Reserve a few times, but only as a, a solo horn player. And it was great to have a uh, tenor sax by my side so we could come up with little horn parts on the fly. and. Uh, yeah, it'd be like one horn solo on each tune or something. It was very, uh, very unofficial kind of thing. Just jamming and having a great time, playing like three sets into the night very successfully. Um, yeah, great, great hang, great hit with National Reserve. Um, enjoyed that quite a bit. Played with Mario again following night, Saturday night, the hot mess was booked at Terra Blues, which is this, you know, funny, touristy blues club in the uh, village on Bleecker Street. And people come in. There's actually a guy who stands out on the steps and says, live blues, come on inside and hear live blues kind of thing. The way I'm used to seeing people do that for like comedy shows be standing out hey you like comedy and give you a flyer and like have you come to this comedy show that's what it's like at Terra Blues there's a guy actually doing that and people actually do want to hear live blues the first set we did that night was was pretty dead there weren't many people at 7 p.m. who wanted to hear live blues but there were significantly more people at 8 p.m. who wanted to hear live blues and come in and spend $14 on a uh, Bushmills or whatever they got uh, there was a trumpet player sitting in with the band for his 
first time that night. Normally, Satoru, the trumpet player, handles most of the melodies. I mean, he's like an encyclopedia, knows a zillion songs, and is also, he's the regular guy in the band, so he knows all the songs of this band. In this case, you know, I don't really know all of them yet, and the trumpet player um, didn't know all of them, but he knew a lot. He was an older guy, and he's clearly, like, into the trad jazz scene, and so he knew most of these standard tunes already, and uh, it was fun playing playing next to somebody new, making the music. With Satoru on trumpet, the Hot Mess played another gig uh, at Radagast, the beer hall, a few nights later. And this midweek nighttime gig at Radagast is quite pleasant. They give you food, they pay the band decently, and swing dancers come. And it's not loud and it's fun. Playing, playing there on the Saturday afternoon when it's totally crazy and loud is is like kind of intense this isn't intense it's just it's very pleasant so uh the radagast gig was fun but there was something behind the scenes again to go back to the uh playing for tips conversation briefly the um tip bucket was passed at the end of the first set and at the end of the second set and the guy who books the band said i can't have you passing the hat like i forbid you to do that during the third set this is coming from management and some of the bands who have been playing there or maybe one band i don't know um had been like really aggressive with the um with the bucket passing hat passing like i said the uh, elmos and the spider-mans in times square have been getting aggressive with their panhandling I mean, people come to the bar to hang out with their friends and drink. They appreciate that there's a band there and are usually happy to give a couple of bucks as a tip the way they give a couple of bucks to their server as a tip. But they didn't ask for us to be there, and they probably didn't really pay any attention to us. You know, we're there, like, providing some ambiance, but they might have been way at the other side of the room and not listening at all and don't feel obligated to pay, so that's fine don't get in their face apparently some person from some band was like getting into everyone's face and insisting that they tip and being a jerk about it so now there's a policy that no bands can pass the hat i mean about a a quarter to a third of the money i bring home from that gig is from the tip jar so that's a significant um significant factor in playing that gig as a musician like do you have that money and that transaction with the audience i mean maybe it's someone who hasn't been thinking about the band but then you go up and uh ask for tips and they give you a dollar and then they start paying attention after that and and enjoy it i i don't know i don't know it should be called the I Don't Know podcast. So many unanswered questions. I uh, hit Central Park on the tuba the following morning. Great tin, tin pan hit with the tuba. I have a tuba case now, 
so I can carry my tuba around in the case. Got the case given to me, got the tuba given to me, and the mouthpiece given to me. I am just like a magnet for good tuba vibes. Something karmically is going on. And so I try to repay that karma by playing the tuba well. And uh, I had a great time playing in the park on that particular morning. That about does it for the month of July. Not an entirely dull month. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. And I will be back to tell you about August in about 30 days. <laughs>